Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here and that you're here on this day, the day that we're finishing out the series. AJ had asked me, he said, how long has this, because he was going to talk about it like he just did, he said, how long has this series been going on? And I, I started to think back of all the weeks, like before Christmas, and then some of the weeks now, I kind of threw my hands up in the air, and I said, I'm not really sure, I'll just give you a range, it's like 17 to 20, I don't even know, somewhere in there. So we've been in this series for a very long time, and if you have missed any of those talks, you can find them on YouTube and also on the church's website, but I want to end... Uh, this series, the same way that I began it. And what I asked at the, the very beginning of this series, last year, way before Christmas, was this question. Does a Christian flee from the world? Do they fight it, conform to it, change it, or is there a deeper meaning to living as citizens and strangers? So what is the Christian's mandate in the world that we live in? And what do we do? Hopefully, that throughout all of these weeks, however many weeks this series has been, hopefully that through this experience that you'd be able to answer this question and that you'd be able to, honest to, to answer it honestly and also biblically. And my hope is that, that you'll be able to share that. And if you're in a community group, this is actually one of the questions. So you're welcome. You get to talk about this amongst your friends. So if, if you're not ready to answer this question, you better be because they're going to be asking you in a couple days. But this is literally what... Peter talked about in all five chapters of 1 Peter and also in 2 Peter, which we haven't gone into but we're going to touch on today, is what is the Christian's responsibility today? What do we do? How do we live? You see, one of the things that I found is as Christians, we, we tend to, even if somebody's given their life to Jesus, we tend to land in one of two extremes after salvation, the first extreme that a lot of Christians land in is what I'm going to call quietism. Quietism is this. Quietism is rooted in this idea that it's just the power of God will enter my life and He will change everything about me. That I don't have to do anything. That, that He's going to clean up my, my financial history. That my bankruptcy is not going to count anymore. That I'm going to be wealthy. My kids are going to have it all together. All the prodigal sons and daughters, they're coming home. Like everything about you is right. Your, your mama issues, your dad issues, your personal issues, your marriage issues, your mar issues with your kids. The idea is with quietism is this. It's just this mentality and it's a faulty mentality of saying, well, I'm just going to let go and let God meaning I have no part to play. I'm just going to trust that God's going to clean my whole life up and all I have to do is just sit back and watch. And this, and I, the two things that we're going to see as we open up this, this sermon is this. These are things that I've seen over and over and over again. So it isn't like I just pulled these two things out of the sky. These are things that I've seen. Unfortunately, I've seen them. And I'm talking about saved people, or at least they say that they're saved. So this idea of quietism, well, I'm just going to let go and let God, and He's going to clean up my life. And I don't have to play any part other than just letting Him do it. And then we can sometimes err on the other extreme, and that's activism. And, and the belief there is, I, it's all up to me. Yeah, I was saved way back when, but now it's my job to do all this. And I've got to work, and I've got to do this, and I've got to fix myself, and I've got to clean myself up. And let me tell you, if you go down that road, both of these paths, really with quietism and activism, they both leave you with a fatalistic view of faith. 
They both lead you to a place where you just ultimately give up. They, they both, if you just run that all the way down, what happens is, listen to me, church, what happens is you, you may run away from the church or run away from God altogether. And these, are, these two extremes are faulty. The quietism is just, I'm going to let go and let God, and he's going to fix my whole life. And then when you don't have everything figured out and your kid doesn't come home and you have no margin for any sort of, of, of anything goes in your life because you're like, God, you failed me. I let go when I let you. And he's saying, yeah, but I wanted you to do something. But yet the activism side is we just run around exhausted and tired. And we say, yeah, I'm saved, but we lived as if we're not. We, lived, we live as if our salvation depends on us. As if we're holding it all together. And your shoulders aren't that broad. You're not that strong. You're never intended to be. Both of these end up with a place of people just shrugging their shoulders and saying, I don't know, maybe the whole Jesus thing wasn't for me. Maybe it's just not real. I don't know why I did that. It's because our expectations are off. And mind you, these two things, these are things that I've seen that happen to Christians, not non-Christians. I would expect these things to happen to non-Christians or things similar to what non-Christians can do in these two realms. I'm talking about people who say that they're saved and they would say on this day or in this season of my life, I gave my life to Jesus. But yet we're, these people are living either in the quietism or passivism is ultimately what it gets down to or activism where it's, it depends all on us. And again, I'm not talking about salvation because there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Amen? There's nothing you can do to save yourself. I mean, it is simply by the grace of God that somebody gets saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what it says in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves. So I'm not talking about, well, I need to work with God to save myself. No, 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 there's nothing you could do. There was no work that you could offer up God that God would say, oh, come on in, you're great now. It was through the, the finished work of the cross the blood of Jesus, that, that a person becomes saved, and they can be saved. So we have this, this dynamic now, this blend, if you will. And I'll summarize it to say this, the Christian life is a curious blend of trusting God and resolute action based upon it, meaning upon that trusting God. It's this curious blend of it's the Christian life, people that are saved of trusting God, but yet taking actions. As a matter of fact, that's what we see in 2 Peter. Yeah, you heard me right, 2 Peter. I just want us to look at this passage, and maybe this will just whet your appetite. You can just keep going with what Peter said. But I want us to read in 2 Peter, starting in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. What I ultimately want us to see is a big idea, but then also three different words that become, really, you see, the lifeblood of this letter, but also the lifeblood of, of a Christian's life and experience, even today. So this is what it says in 2 Peter 1, 3. It says, His divine power has given us, meaning Christians, everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. 
Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Pause there for a moment. We'll get back to verse 5 in just a second. So now what we see in verse 3 is Peter gives this message. He says it's his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. That's an amazing thing. So the first thing that we see is power. There's power that's on offer. So while we're talking about this curious blend of, of faith and action and what that looks like, we also see that it is what's on offer is the divine power that works through Christians. So if you at any time in your life, listen to me, church, if you at any time in your life where you feel like you've just kind of you've like moved beyond God and you're operating on your own power, you have. You have. And the way back is stopping what you're doing, turning around, repenting, and getting back to where God is. But it's, it's divine power. The second thing that we see in verse 4, it says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious, what's the next word? Promises. So now a Christian lives with the, the divine power of God flowing through them to enable them to live the life that God is calling us to, and now we have the promises of God to cling to. But he continues, verse 5, for this very reason, notice what he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, what? What? To add to your faith. In other words, here are some things you need to add to your salvation. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. Notice what he says. You need to make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and he has forgotten that he is being cleansed from his past sins. So the, the three Ps, if you will, that we see in 1 Peter is the first one, divine power. So if you're operating under God's divine power, that means that you're trusting God adequately, trusting Him in like increasingly, and also we're resting in the promises of God. And after that, we see that what Peter says in verse 5, let's go back to this again. Make, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith. In other words, the moment of salvation wasn't the day that you were done. That was the day you simply were to begin. You were to begin with these things, and it's the last P, practices, practices. So the first one is divine power. The second one was what? Promises. The third one is practices. This is the curious blend of both action and faith as it's resting on the reliance of God's power and obedience to his word. That's what this is. He says to add to your faith. To add to your faith. In other words, I'll say it in this way, and very succinctly, hopefully. 
It's the curious blend of action and faith that rests on our reliance on God's power and obedience to His Word. This is... This is what it's about. This is taking these three truths and applying them into your life so we don't have to settle for for activism or quietism or passivism. We don't have to settle for those extremes. Now we live this life in between as citizens and saints, citizens and strangers. Now we live together, as Peter would say, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, and now we're united around this truth. That these, the idea of faith and action is supposed to be blended together. Now we're going to see in our main passage in 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 5. What we're going to see is four different principles that are going to help us live this out. Some of these are understandings and some of these are not just simply things for our minds, but actions that we need to take. And this is what... Peter would get to. So 1 Peter 5, verse 5, it says this, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. The first principle we see from this passage, starting in verse 5, is this. It's the submissive way. It's the submissive way. So we don't err in either one of these two extremes. We don't err in the extreme of quietism or passivism or or, or the idea of quietism, passivism, or some activism, so we don't err in any of these ways. First, it's the submissive way. Verse 5, this is what Peter said. He says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Well, why would he say this? I want you to take a, just a, a, a step back into your life. Remember when you were 16 years old? Do you think you would have needed this advice when you were 16? Typically, when somebody's 16... They're young, restless, and rebellious, right? So his message is very practical. It's very practical, too, that two weeks ago I preached a message where Peter, he gave instructions specifically to the elders. And he was like, elders, hey, this is how you're going to love, pastor, shepherd, offer administration, and care to the flock. He says, here's how you're going to do it. And then one verse later, he talks about young men because young men and young people, generally speaking, tend to be rebellious. They tend to be the people who don't want to submit to the authority that's over them. They're the people who think they have it all together before actually knowledge and wisdom seep in. They just tend to think that they have it. So now what what Peter is saying, there's the submissive way, but it's not just young people. Notice what it says in the very next part. 
It's not just young people who are supposed to do this the submissive way. He says, all of you, or as we would say in the South, all y'all, right? Or your mom and them. I don't know. I don't know which one it is, but it fits somewhere, right? He says, all of you, just in case you thought it was just, oh, that's, this is a message for the elders. Oh, that's just a message for young people. He says, no, 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 all of you. Notice what he says for all of us to do. He says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. This idea of clothing yourselves in the Greek is this idea of putting on an apron. It's the idea of putting on an apron. In other words, this humility leads us to service. It leads us to service. This humility doesn't stop with us. It simply, it begins with God flowing through us, through us, and then it looks like service to other people. Putting on an apron, getting to work, being involved in the community of God. But then he says, to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the, the proud and he gives grace to the humble. You see, this idea of the submissive way, I, I want to summarize it by saying this. Christians find freedom in submitting to God and can therefore have freely submitted to others for the Lord's sake. This is what they can do because they've humbled themselves before God because they knew there was nothing they could do to save themselves. They know that, if they, that without God, they're either going to end up in one of two extremes, either, either the, the quietism, the passivism side, or activism. Either one of those is fatalistic and ends up in a place that is not what Jesus would call abundant from John 10.10. 10. So instead, the Christians find freedom in submitting to God. They find freedom there. And because they've already submitted to God, they can therefore freely submit to other people for the Lord's sake. The second takeaway is this, if you're a note taker, it's the humble warriors. It's the humble warriors. Not only were they to clothe themselves with humility, take the servant's apron, but also... We see, and we've just read this a moment ago, that there are to be warriors realizing that there's a spiritual battle. And the way that this spiritual battle is going to be won is if we're humble before our God. But Jesus modeled this perfectly, did he not? When he washed the disciples' feet in John 13. And Jesus said this in John 13, 15. He said, I have set an example that you should do as I've done for you. He says, I, I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. So in other words, follow suit with what you've seen me doing. Which is why we talk about over and over and over that to, to pursue Christ-likeness and discipleship to Jesus is being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And Jesus, he said, I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. In other words, follow suit. Peter would add to that when he talks about the battle that, that's waging for every Christian. But notice before he even gets into the, into the battle with Satan himself, what does he do? He says, no, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He says, make sure you're on the right side. Maybe the reason why you're feeling this opposition right now, maybe the reason why you're in a battle right now, maybe the reason why you're racked with anxiety right now, maybe the reason why you have so much stress in your life right now is because you're living life on your terms. And before Peter says anything about the spiritual battle, he says, make sure you're humble before God. 
Because God opposes the proud. You could be on the wrong side of this thing. But he gives grace to the humble. And he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Proverbs 3, 34 says this. God mocks proud mockers, because, but gives grace to the humble. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. We have to make sure that we're on the right side of this thing. We have to make sure that knowing that the spiritual battles are here, but we're on the right side of those battles. You see, the humility of those who serve Christ is not just an absence of pride or an awareness of our limitations. The humility of those who serve Christ is not just the absence of pride or just an awareness of our limitations. This humility gives us the very basis if we, we have a faith that is firm on Christ and that is steadfast in Him, that, that Christ is the foundation and we do so out of humility, that we clothe ourselves with humility and we put on that servant's apron and then we say, yes, God, I'm ready for your service. And then sometimes we tend to, to boast or brag about ourselves and we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And we need to be reminded of passages like 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, you were not the author of your life. He says, What do you have that you first didn't receive from somewhere else or someone else? And then he says, If then you received it. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, why are you trying to take the credit for what God's done in your life? Ultimately, it comes down to this. A Christian knows that they can't make themselves or save themselves, so they ought to humble themselves. A Christian, a Christian knows, or they should know, that they can't make themselves. And they can't save themselves. Clearly talked about that. So we should humble ourselves. And you may think, well, yeah, the reason why I have anxiety is because I have so much pressure that's on me. I mean, I, like, I feel the weight of everybody's issues. And maybe there's some practical reasons why. Maybe you're letting people do that to you. But perhaps what you're not doing is you're not looking around. We need to look around and see what the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He said this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And notice what he says next. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. So maybe the reason why we feel the way to the world is because all we're doing is looking at ourselves. We're looking at our issues. We're looking at our kids. Or I wish we had all this taken care of and I can't wait till this season's over and I can't wait till this and I've got my schedule and I've got my burdens and all my family issues. Maybe what we're doing is we're just putting our eyes on these things and instead maybe what we need to do is open our eyes up to see what is God's way of escape that he's posed for us. This word that, that, that we read together is True. If you're in Christ and you're in the middle of, of a trial right now, a temptation, a temptation, there's a way out. 
you can't look at yourself and look at your issues. You need to, to lift your eyes up and see, God, what is the way of escape that you have for me? The amazing thing is this, that word is true, that there is a way of escape. We just simply need to, to see what it is and follow it. That's trusting God, but then taking actions in accordance to it. We see powerful verses like in verse 7 of 1 Peter 5, and it says, cast all of your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Because he knows your name. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. He knows your full story. He knows, he knows things about you that you will probably never know about you. But God cares for you. And here's what's on offer, casting all your anxieties on him. Third takeaway is this. We see this in verse 8. It's the enemy's work. We would be wrong if we didn't identify, and Peter would be wrong if he didn't identify the enemy's work. But notice what he says here. Again, here's, here's firm. He's, what's on offer is a firm belief and then and faith and then also action and this curious blend between the two. He says, be self-controlled and alert. These are actions that he, he's saying to take. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Again, you see, Standing firm in the faith, this is a belief, and then he's also saying resist him. This is action, actions we need to take. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It's the enemy's work. So, so in those moments where you feel like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders and everything depends on you and you've got to be, you're all in your kid's business and you're meddling in their life and you're meddling in your parents' life and you're meddling in your, your aunt's and uncle's life. You can't wait to meddle in somebody's life. You're moving beyond God. Allow God to be God. You weren't meant to carry all those burdens. You were meant to give those burdens to God because he knows things about you that you don't know about you. And he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So in those moments where you feel like you have to take the weight of the world and you feel like you have to be the activist, you you're, tend to be into activism, I want you to know what you're doing is you're falling right into the, del, in, into the enemy's plan. That's the enemy's work. That's what he wants. Because the enemy wants this. The enemy seeks to discredit God's word and destroy God's works. So when you feel tired on a Sunday morning or you're tired on a Sunday, Saturday night and you're trying to decide, oh, I don't know if I want to go to church tomorrow or I just don't know if I want to do that. If, if you have this little doubt, like I just don't know if I want to meet with those people. I'm not going to go get that counseling. I'm just going to go, let's just take a weekend away. Let's go do whatever. Let's just, I just want to give up on this marriage. I want to give up on those kids. Anytime that, that, that any of those things seep into your mind, I want you to know that it is bigger than you. And if you comply with those things that I just said, you are falling right into the enemy's plan because he wants to discredit God's word and destroy God's works. And if he can convince you that you're too tired to go to church, which is a pretty easy thing these days because we're very distracted people. If he can convince you, oh, I'm just too busy, I'm too distracted, I've got all this work to do, that is, he's, he's just gonna do it. 
And if you're not relying upon God, and if you don't know that that's the enemy's plan, you're just going to walk right into it like blind sheep walking right off a cliff. And there's even a danger even within the church. There is. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising that, in, that if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. In other words, what he's saying is, don't be surprised even if in a house of worship there are people who are masking arrayed as, as these people are of righteous, the, the servants of righteousness, but they're really masquerading as, as servants of the evil one. So we have to be careful, don't we? We, we have to be aware of what's going on in our world. And not to just be blind. God is not glorified in our blindness. God is not glorified in, in our quietism, where we just say, oh, I'm just going to let go and let God. He's not glorified when, you, when we live like we're defeated. God's not glorified when we live as if he doesn't exist. God's not glorified with that. God's glorified when we walk forward by faith and we take the actions that we need. God is glorified when we rest on his promises, when we cling to his divine power, his power working through us, and yet we, we live out the spiritual practices and some of those things that we read in 2 Peter. That's when God is most glorified. Fourth takeaway, if you're a note taker, is this. It's the believer's warfare. The believer's warfare. Verses 9, we see this. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So he's trying to encourage them. He says, hey, you're not the only one going through this. There's, uh, there's other people going through this too right now. He says, I want to encourage you. Don't feel like you're lonely and you're left out. He says, no, no, no. There's, there's a group of you. There's a group of you. God is not singling you out. That we're in this thing together. But resist him, standing firm in your faith. And then he says, And the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I want us to, to understand something very clearly about the believer's warfare. Satan can be resisted only in a firm and settled faith. Satan can be resisted only in a firm and settled faith. This is what Peter Said, he says, resist him standing firm in the faith. You have no defenses if your faith is not settled in Christ. If there is a crack in your foundation, and the foundation should be the finished work of Christ, if there is a crack in that, you are vulnerable and you are weak. And the only way that can be restored is going back to God, not adding more of you. This isn't something that your parents' faith can fix. This isn't something that your, your spouse's faith can fix. That's something only God can fix. Satan can be resisted only in a firm and settled faith. 
What are you putting your faith in today? Maybe this is the cause of your anxiety. That you're putting faith in other things. Maybe you're even putting faith in your own abilities and you think, well, I can handle it, I can handle it, I can handle it. What we need to do is we need to get to a place like Isaiah 50 verse 7. This is what Isaiah was inspired to write. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint and I know that I will not be put to shame. In other words, he, he's saying, I know that my God helps me. That is foundational to my faith and my belief and my practice. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, he says, I have set my face like flint. I am so focused on God right now. I'm so focused on Jesus. I can't, I, I'm not gonna bother with those other things because I'm so focused on Jesus that I can't see other things right now. And if he's my focal point, then he's gonna make my path straight. And then he says with confidence, and I know, and, and, and he says, and I know that I will not be put to shame. That's somebody who has a firm and settled faith. Notice at the end of 1 Peter, verse 10, he says, meaning that Christ, he says, after you've suffered a little while, the Christ himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I'll say it in a couple different ways. That means that God will restore and repair what's broken. That God will repair and restore what's broken. It also means this, that God will make us strong or stable, sharing his courage and strength with us, even if we're weak believers. And that God will make us firm, our faith firm in him. And that God will make us steadfast. And steadfast, it means that the foundation is solid and that our defenses can rest upon Christ. You see, this is that curious blend between faith and action. That doesn't settle for the extreme of quietism where it's, well, God is just gonna clean up my life. And then it eventually leads us to a place where we give up. Or on the other side where we think, well, it's all about us. We've got to do everything. It's all about us. Which then also leads us to a place of defeat and giving up. If we could read verse 7 again. 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. You know, I think at the place of, of salvation, we realize, you know, we're burdened and somebody gives their life to Jesus. And I think there's this, this, this monumental place in our life where we have these heavy burdens and maybe it's salvation. We realize we can't save ourselves, and we have these heavy burdens and there's a place and time in our life where we, we honestly, we, we bring those to Jesus and we think, Oh, I mean, you just, that just feels so much lighter and it just seems like you have life. But then maybe as you track on later in life, some other type of anxieties and burdens come up. Maybe there's some small ones, maybe some, some big ones. And, and maybe there's, there's some bits of anxiety that we feel 
that, that feel insurmountable at times and we just, we kind of get crippled by them. So we just, we have it and we just kind of limp along to the cross. Maybe it's in a church service like this one and then you just kind of limp along and you just put it at the cross and you're like, yes, Jesus, I'm, I have victory. But then there's some, maybe some sneaky things that happen, some smaller things and we just kind of, we don't know what to do with those. Maybe we're surprised by things and then we don't know what to do so we kind of hold on to that. We, we just, we, I, we're just not sure about that. So we hold on to it. And then there's some, there's some other things too. Maybe some other burdens come along and we have some freedom. Maybe we hear a song. Maybe it's a verse. Maybe it's just a Sunday morning where you just sense the power of God in your life and you're just like, oh, you're just amazed. And you just, you go and you bring that, that burden, that anxiety to God. And you're like, yes, I'm living in victory. And then something else happens where later on in life, maybe you find something else out about you and it's a big burden to carry. And, and the temptation is, is to just kind of take that burden and saying, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to hold this burden. We can become friends with burdens. We can hold these burdens for so long, and then we can use these burdens and this anxiety and we say, no, 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 this is the reason why I am the way that I am. No, 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 this anxiety, this is why I'm never getting close to people again because I was close to people one time and what they did to me, I will never forgive them. So I'm gonna hold on to that and we accept that as an identity piece. And we keep that not only as an identity but also an excuse why we never grow, why we stay at arm's length, why we say I'm never gonna get close to that person again. Maybe you go through a divorce and you're like, you know what, this is the reason why I'm gonna dabble in relationships but I'm never gonna commit again because I'm holding on to that anxiety and I'm not gonna let it go. This is my identity and I want that. Sometimes we can get convinced that this anxiety is like a warm blanket but it's a warm blanket that basically will just strangle the life right out of us. We can think, you know what, I'm just going to hold on to this anxiety because we can become proud of it. Look at me. I can take it. I'm strong. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I got this. We can become so proud of how well we hold on to this. And, you know, I could probably hold on to this for 15 or 20 minutes in this probably the same position. My arm would get a little shaky, right? But eventually I'm going to break down. And here's the truth. Eventually you will too. You were never meant to carry all those anxieties. You were never meant to carry all those worries. You were never meant to live in shame. What you were meant for and what you were saved for is so that you can walk in victory by bringing these things to the base of the cross. That's what you were made for. That's what you were saved for. Then there's this one. We didn't know what to do with this one. This one, you know, it really wasn't that big of a deal. So we thought, you know, I'm just going to hold on to this one. I mean, it's not as big as the other ones. After all, you know, this is probably not something I even need to give to God. This is probably something I can handle all by myself. So we don't, you know, you don't cast that anxiety on God. It's like, no, I, I'm going to, I can carry this one. I'm strong enough to carry this one. I can do this. And then we can fool ourselves to think, well, we're going to be resilient people if we just keep holding on to it. But you are saved for more than that. What does that verse say? Let's read it together. Cast all your 
anxiety on him because what? He cares for you. He didn't say cast some of your anxiety and hold on to the rest of it. He didn't say, you know what, keep that one piece of anxiety because that's the thing that you're going to use as an excuse to get to know people. He didn't say, well, no, you need to hold on to that anxiety because that's going to be the reason why that you never get close to your kids. He didn't say, well, you hang on to that one anxiety because that's going to be the reason why you're cynical to everyone. He didn't say that. He says, cast all, it's, a, it's an offer. He says, cast all of your anxiety on him. Why, church? Why? Because he cares for you. But you know, Satan is, he's tricky. Because maybe you walk around and maybe you're like, you know, you're in a season right now where you feel like you're, you're in victory. And you know what? And it's like, you know what? I'm not carrying those things. It feels pretty good. If I held on to this one, my arm is going to be huge and this one's going to be really small. But sometimes what, what we do is even when we let those things go, Satan is so shifty. And he, here's what he wants us to do. He wants us to then look at the anxieties instead of looking at Jesus. So he wants us to sit back and just look at those anxieties and and dwell on those anxieties and never minding the fact and taking our eyes off of Jesus and putting on those anxieties. Why? Because if we do that, we end up right where we were whenever we had all the anxieties. So our eyes have to be on Jesus. I don't know what anxieties you have right now. I have to tell you, I'm somebody, I struggle with anxiety. Sometimes I know why and sometimes I don't. I know how it affects my body. I know I get a pressure in my chest. Way before it affects me emotionally, I get pressure in my chest and I can't, I can't take it away. I know what it feels like when I'm holding something that I need to give to Jesus. What are you holding today? What are you holding today? In your worship guide, if you have a worship guide, if you open it up, there's a little slip of, a little slip of paper, a little white piece of paper. And I want to pray for us, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that. If you don't have a worship guide, we actually have more of them up here and pens as well. But here's what I want you to do. I'm going to pray. But if there's something that you're anxious about, and maybe it's something that it's a recurring issue, and you just, you're anxious about this, anxious about this, I want you to write it down. I want you to write it down. I want you to make it concrete. I don't want you to just have it in your head. I want you to write it down. And I'm praying that God's going to give you the faith and courage to do it. I'm also praying that after you write it down, that God's going to give you the faith and courage to get out of your seats and and go place it at the cross. And that as an act of worship, that you're saying, God, I'm sick of, of holding this. You say, cast all my anxieties on you because you care for me. And now I'm practically going to do what you said that I can do. And now, just as, as literally an act of worship, I want you to take that piece of paper that has your anxiety or anxieties on it, fold it up, and I want you to walk right up here to the cross, and I want you to put it in the basket just as a way of saying, God, I'm giving these to you. And then after you do that, then uh, if, if you feel inclined to, and if you're a follower of Jesus in good standing with him in the church, uh, then I want you to know that the tables are open for you to take the Lord's Supper.
You're not going to come back here to take the Lord's Supper in your chair. You're literally going to take him at the wall. Take as much time as you need. Take as much time as you need at the cross. Take as much time as you need in praying. We don't just move on from a sermon like this. What I'm believing is you have a whole list of anxieties. And I'm also believing that God's going to give you the courage to write them down and to step out in faith and take that act of worship and say, Jesus, I'm giving these to you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for your inspired word. Words that are true. And they truly impact our lives when you say, cast all your anxiety on him. Because you care for us. God, I pray that even right now in this moment, God, that you would just inspire people to write on those cards. They would pull the cards out. They would write things down. They would allow the Spirit to reason with their heart. And just be honest enough to write it down. But God, I'm also praying that you'd give them the courage enough to get out of their seats and come up to the cross as an act of worship and say, Jesus, I'm giving these to you. And just as a sign of victory, God, of just the finished work, your broken body, your shed blood. God, as we just continue this response, Lord, and then when people go take the elements, they do so not just in a place of a false humility of saying, poor, poor, pitiful me, but they take the elements and say, I'm victorious in you. So God, stir these people with faith, confidence, honesty. God, examine hearts, examine minds, examine motives. Show us those anxieties and give us the courage we need. Amen.